It's better to keep your mouth shut and let people think you're an idiot than to open it and leave no doubt. You know, I hope there's Bigfoot. I don't think there is. What a beautiful woman. Wow. He's, AJ's doing Whoa. some things right down So if you're a youngster in Alabama, start getting the football out and throw it around the backyard with Pop. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome back, guys. Uh, we got to see some Week Zero games, so we're just going to go ahead and kind of run through the games that we got to watch. Um, recap the ones that mattered, which unfortunately there wasn't too many. Uh, it seems like Week Zero is becoming more of a blue ball skit than anything. Um, they give you a little bit of football, but not the good stuff. But it was still great, and we got to watch some football, and that was great to have on, on my television screen. So I think the only way to properly start it off here is by starting off in Dublin, Ireland, which was an unfortunate setting or actually probably a, a very fortunate setting for some sad Huskers fans. There's not a better place to drink your sadness away than Dublin. But what did you guys, what was your takeaways from the Nebraska Northwestern game? Same old Nebraska. Same old Nebraska. They're going to lose, lose each game by around, around three points. I think Scott Frost is like three and twenty-one in one-score games in his career at Nebraska. Just they just find ways to lose. It's just the Nebraska way these days. Uh, it wasn't Adrian Martinez's fault. You can't blame him anymore. Um, it's still happening. They're still losing. Scott Frost is luckily going to get away, getting by like what week three before being fired. Um, but I think his days are are numbered in Lincoln. Uh, it was eight. On the field that first drive, and I was like, "Wow, this Nebraska team might not be terrible." Because they're talking about all the transfers they had. It's like, "Hey, this this could be interesting." And then next time out, they're on the one, three plays, and they're punch, and it, and that was the end of their, that was the end of Nebraska being back. That's all I can really say about. That. It was actually a decent game too. Yeah, I that was my number one. My first takeaway was I was expecting, and I think a lot of people were expecting this when it's those two. Um, those two teams playing that we were going to see a pretty low scoring, not a great game. It was like a solidly entertaining football game all the way through. Um, pretty good offenses, too. Northwestern last year was absolutely pitiful on offense. Like, I mean, if you're watching Northwestern offense last year, you might as well just watch your fingernails grow. And this year they, they looked good. Ryan Holinsky, man, came out. And I'll just be honest with you. It'll be interesting to see whenever he gets actually pressured because North, Nebraska didn't touch him all day. But he looked very sharp. And uh, – the question I think that's important from this game, and I think a lot of people are going to overreact to it because it's a week zero game, and that's just what happens because it was literally the only game that mattered in the slightest bit. But do you guys think this is a Northwestern – I guess the way I should phrase it is do you think this is Northwestern being good or is this Nebraska being bad? Like which one do you think kind of occurred on, on in Dublin? I think, I think kind of both because I think Nebraska could be a good team. But like like I said, they just find ways to blow games. But I mean, Ryan Holinsky looks really good out there. He uh, 
transferred from South Carolina, so he's got some SEC experience. So, I mean, I think Northwestern might be, I mean, decent this year. Yeah. Maybe 7-5. It's certainly a weird thing with the even years in, in Northwestern. They are up and down, and the even years, they seem to be up. So, it's an even year. I mean, maybe they maybe they have a good team this year. They, they looked good. I mean, they looked pretty good at corner and, and DB, is, and they're – their offensive line is really, really good. I just saw – I went and golfed, so I unfortunately couldn't watch this entire game, but I watched probably about half of the second quarter, and literally the first play of me turning on the TV to watch it was a post right over the top, and uh, Northwestern was sent it to the house. Like, it was – that was I that saw that, and I was like, all right. Yeah. No, they like got, just – It's busted. just – I, I – yeah, I, 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 I don't think Nebraska fans deserve – or this Nebraska team deserves the Nebraska fans. I mean, that entire stadium was full of Red Huskers fans getting up, probably hammered. Um, but it's just – I feel – my heart goes out to him, man. I couldn't imagine being a Husker fan the last, like, five years. Yeah, they – they, they go out – oh, how we haven't talked about it yet is beyond me. They go out, go up by 11, uh, all the momentum's on their side, and then for whatever reason decide to onside kick it, and they never score again. Like, that was the most ridiculous, like, onside kick I've ever seen in my life. Like, why would you – I'm not sure what calls for an onside kick up 11 at that point in the game. That made no sense to me. Yeah, he came out and said, like, yeah, that's on me. Yeah, no shit it's on you. Like, no yeah, one else you, is calling that dumbass play. You, If it was on the special teams coach, he would have been fired already. Well, he's yeah. the special teams coach. Well, do you guys Frost think- is the special teams coach. Which is the issue, yeah. So why hasn't he been fired yet? <laughs> they not, does he do that? That's his – I mean, so he gave up the offensive play calling. Does he run like calling. Yeah, he does. He, he gave up play calling to Mark Whipple that came from Pitt, so he became the – special teams is kind of his thing now, and they don't have a special teams coach, so it's him. But I, I, the, the, the decision is baffling, but I – I honestly, like, from that point on, the entire game's momentum, like, legitimately changed. But the execution of the kick was, like, I mean, they kicked it right at the running back for Northwestern that had carried the ball most of the game. They kicked it right at him. So, like, what? What? <laughs> there was no, like, disguise to it, really. I, I don't know. Just the execution was bad, too. But there were some other games also, in Week 0. Um, you want to go, go ahead, Drew? I said, also, I'm convinced that uh, that guy's knee was down, oh, which was. also changed a lot of the game yeah. because Nebraska was about to score, and then Northwestern got the ball after that, and they ended up scoring on that drive right before half. So that changed the game a lot. In my yeah, opinion. and he was down. I, they they ended up coming back and saying it stands because they couldn't overturn it, but I think he was down. But yeah, that was a massive play. Yeah, they couldn't see his knee. Yeah, they couldn't see his knee where the ball when the ball was at they, – they saw where the ball was stripped, but they couldn't see his knee at that moment. But, like, I think he was down. Yeah. There's never enough camera angles, huh? Mm. Never. You would think by this point. But, there were some other games. I don't know. Did you guys watch any of the UConn game? Because I was – I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. I wasn't, like, super in tune with all the other games. I watched some of them. But uh, the UConn game, I was expecting UConn to get absolutely – shit pumped and they they looked good like the huskies looked good they came up and they were they came out of the game up 14 nothing against utah state 
um, who was a 28-point favorite. And, I mean, they lost by 11, but I thought UConn looked pretty good. So maybe that's something to know. I watched most of that game. Um, they I, they kept talking about their new head coach and, like, how they're building a new culture and everything, and I think it showed. Yeah, um, I think it UConn's did, too. UConn's been a, just a laughing stock in football. But um, I think – I mean, it looks like they're really, like – I mean, they're not good. I'm not going to go say yet. they're a good team or anything, but they – yeah, not yet. But if they can like build that culture up and everything, they won't be the laughing stock of college football for too much longer. You heard it here. Their offense is young. It's well, their quarterback. From everything I saw, their their offense is young. Yeah, and, and then the guy that came in after him was a sophomore. Their running back almost had two hundred yards. Was a sophomore. So and, and their top receivers were both freshmen and sophomores. So it's not like it. it, it they're not going to be good, but they're not they're not going to be an embarrassment. Yeah, their quarterback. UConn is Yeah, Husky. UConn suck on these nuts. They got uh, their quarterback, their starter got hurt on the third play. So, like, like how are they supposed to deal with that when they're an absolutely horrible team? But uh, number eight for UConn can play on Sundays for the Eagles, for anybody. I mean, he's good. Uh, I can't remember his name, but he was really good. I think Jackson Mitchell maybe, something like that. So, not really other much to take other than that game. Utah State Ooh. plays Alabama next week, though. Uh, hey, that, that's the team that that guy bet like what a thousand dollars on to win the national championship or something like that. I think so. so yeah, that's the team that that guy did that. Yeah, no, he is. Yeah, hey, Utah got, State. If they, if they beat Bama, big they beat Bama, they got a shot. The whole time it wasn't Texas that was needing to beat Bama; it was Utah State. <laughs> it was Utah State. <laughs> I think this is Utah State's year, man. It's I an Aggie. It. It's uh, an Aggie year. How could UConn even pull that coach in? I mean, he used to be a former head NFL head coach. Jim yeah, I think he retired. I mean, he's a yeah. His dad's the one that said that. Yeah, he's yeah. not a great NFL coach, but <laughs> his dad's the one that said playoffs. Yeah, yeah, it is. Playoffs. No, I like Jim Moore as a coach, but whenever he was an analyst, he was like, he was talking about the Big Twelve, like a couple, like twenty twenty. Whenever the defenses were at least all right, and he was like. You know what the other teams do? They tackle. You know what Oklahoma does? They do not tackle. And I was like, dude, what? Have you been watching the games? They've had a, a fairly solid defense. 2018 OU. 2018 OU, I don't know. If, I don't well, know. It was like, <laughs> it was like last tackle, year. It was like last year. Like, dude, they were fine defensively. They weren't amazing, but they were fine. I don't know. Just yeah, and I'm all for Utah State being good. Their quarterback's name is Logan Boner, so – I think I think it's two ends. That's his name, <laughs> Logan Boner. Yeah, Boner. The Boner. The Boner in my mind. The Super Bone. All right, Boner. <laughs> three point contest. Three point contest champion. Yeah. Uh, see the. Uh, I can't remember what game it was. I think it was the <laughs> Illinois game where, uh, like, some guy got tackled and he didn't go down. Um, and like his forearm was completely down, but they just didn't even review it or anything. It just kicked a field goal. I was I a little, did, I did not it was see a fun that. play to watch, but, but I did see the, um, I, did I can't see even the, the, the ref in the Wyoming, Illinois game, like before the game doing some mental reps, he was like spotting the ball down with nobody else. Oh, yeah. oh, God. oh that was awesome. The Russell well, Wilson well, of refs. Clearly it didn't help because they missed a big one. It, missed oh, a big yeah. one. Uh, what other games? What kind of, okay, Hawaii Vanderbilt. That was unexpected. I will say Vanderbilt just beating the shit out of Hawaii was a little bit crazy. 
But it but it also made for week zero kind of as a letdown. So I was expecting that game to be fairly close. Yeah, uh, I didn't yeah, watch a second of that game, to be honest. <laughs> That's fair. It, I can't watch. I can't watch week one, man. It, it, it's just it's sad. Like I tuned in because like oh football's back, like that's fun. But then there's nothing to look forward to as the night went on. I mean Vanderbilt put up sixty in Hawaii, but I mean that's about it. I actually I turned was watching was watching UNC um, it get like kind of clapped the first drive against Florida A and M. Storm Duck, the corner for UNC, got demolished about four plays in a row. They kept going at him. It was fun to watch. But that's about it. There was a point whenever I turned oh, I turned oh. it from FAU Charlotte to uh, Duncanville South Oak Cliff in high school football. So week zero was not great. Yeah, it is bad. <laughs> but I heard, heard our guy Tommy Lugs on the game there, so that was awesome. Yeah, was Tommy Lugs was there. Yeah, he was. <laughs> Drake May looks really good for UNC. Yeah, he did look good. He did. Their offense was their offense is not the problem. That's the thing. So we'll see if their defense can be good enough for them to be competitive in the ACC. Florida State also got a little tune-up game before they play LSU against Duquesne, but there wasn't really a whole did bunch. Did you see that number fifty? Dude, that that's I feel like that's an unfortunate thing for that Duquesne offensive lineman because I've seen a picture of him in practice. It his his jersey's rolled up like a Zeke Elliott, and he just has a red undershirt. So the pants aren't all the way up like it looks like, unfortunately. But oh, I, it's a bad look, real bad it look It was for him. a horrific look. That dude looked <laughs> I, like he has never played football in his life. It's kind of awesome, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it was. It looked like the classic just Y-ball football, just We're, like kids just wearing whatever their parents dressed them in. Right. Like, I wore this to school today, so I'm just wearing, I'm wearing it outside to, to practice. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever, hey, were you when you guys were kids? Did you guys used to? Did you guys used to um, wear like a long sleeve Under Armour and then wear like a normal shirt over it, like during the winter or something? Like you no. wear a you double shirt? It. I did not do that. No, you guys didn't double shirt it. No, I didn't do that, no. Dude, I used to do that all the time. No. <laughs> long sleeve Under Armour. Put it. I did have. I did have a long sleeve Under Armour that I cut off the left sleeve of. So I had the right sleeve long and the left sleeve no showing. I used to call it my swag shirt. So that tells you anything about me. It's a pretty swag shirt. I was a big – I felt great in it. I was a big uh, hoodie under the, the jersey, the baseball jersey guy at school all the time. And I'd run my, my uh, cord, cord uh, headphones through the jersey and just have them walking around all day long. I thought I was so sick. You got the Westland jersey on? Yeah, oh yeah, you better believe it. There's uh, there's nothing like wearing your jersey to school the day before the game, the day of the game. Nothing like it. Oh, nothing, oh, nothing bad. Friday, walking through the hall, come on. Yeah. Just something special about it. And at Wesleyan, you'd always ask the cheerleader to wear it? Oh, jeez. Oh, come on. She, she knows who she is. I won't say her name because she's married, but she knows who she is when she's wearing <laughs> my jersey. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, the old three-man <laughs> rest marriage scandal. <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't that be something? Yeah. Well, Drew secret did... love triangle. <laughs> what did it? What was it that you said today, Drew? We were playing fantasy football. We were doing our fantasy drafts, and I said we're gonna throw. We're gonna make Kyle throw his team. Uh, and then Drew said we're gonna we're gonna fuck oh, yeah. all his players' wives. <laughs> 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 
It's a good tactic, Kyle. Kyle wins a lot in her late, so I'm trying to throw him off, so Just make the wife cheat on him. <laughs> sounds, like a, sounds like a good way to go to me. Uh, okay, hey, oh, so... You said, uh, you told him to... What? As I said, you told uh, you told Kyle that yeah, you were gonna go Dean Dodge all Dean Don Ditch all of his players' houses and then Oh yeah. Yeah. The rest <laughs> of I, I have to think <laughs> I have gotta go Ding Don Ditch Kyle Kyle Stone soon. Gotta do it. Yeah. Yes. Hey, Kyle's an avid listener, so he's gonna he's hear this. He's never safe. It's an absolute who Wazel, he's gonna hear this. <laughs> Alright, hey you guys oh, wanna go he knows it's coming then. Let's go through our picks, basically, and see how we did, though, from week zero. And then uh, we'll kind of wrap up our week zero recap. But there's not a whole bunch else other than Nebraska being a, pretty much just a, I can't even, a failure at, at the slightest, probably. I don't know. They've got plenty of time to make up for it. Oh, another question I guess I could ask. If, if Nebraska beats Oklahoma in week four, does that make up for this loss? It yes. saves Scott Frost's job. Yeah. Well, it depends what they do, do these next couple games. Well, they played Georgia I think Southern. It's, it's going to be like, kind of like. I think it's kind of going to be like. Remember the Charlie Strong game where they beat Notre Dame? And that kind of saved his job for a little bit. I think it's going to be similar to that. Just delay yeah. the inevitable. Yeah, yeah. I can see that. Uh, I mean, I don't think he's going to be able I, to make it. This I'm going to do some. I'm going to do some bad things if OU loses that game. I, I, it's gonna be a rough week. If they go, if they go win win and then lose to OU, and then lose, if they don't get blown out and then he loses to Indiana the next week, I think he's gone. If they lose to Indiana, that game's gonna be close. The OU game will be close. Yeah, because at home. And I mean, shit. Yeah, every Nebraska is close. Every game is close. They don't have a problem with playing being in the game. Yeah, they have a problem with winning them. Yeah. There is points. Don't like there are points in that game where Casey Thompson looked like a Heisman finalist. He's running around, yeah, like twenty yards backwards and throwing dimes. The thing is, he has he... times like that in Texas, though. Exactly, he looks like yeah. the greatest player on earth, and, and like he just would shit the bed in the wrong moment. No, I agree with Tom. That why why are you throwing a slant that damn hard? <laughs> I don't know. I, if I guess that was, that was there it. was a couple of plays where it like the re, the receiver could have really speed. helped him out, and they just didn't. Oh, he yeah. threw that that interception though. He threw that as hard as he could into that spot. Oh, it's still the receiver's fault. Hit him I right get in the hands. But that's that one wasn't Casey Thompson's fault. There was a couple of the other one was were certainly right bad throws in the second half. In the first half, he was money, and then just kind of faded off accuracy wise. So, and that's kind of what happened at Texas, to be honest. So we'll, we'll see if he can kind of correct that. I do think that they had Liberic a renewed optimism, good. but it just you know didn't work out. It's it's kind of it, they're kind of the same way as Texas in a little bit. Like once things go wrong, the 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 whole ship, you know, like just the whole ship sinks. And instead of like kind of right riding things and getting back, you know, they lose the momentum. It's just gone for the rest of the game. But let's go through the picks that we made last week. Basically. He only picked five games. Drew is uh, now in a commanding 4-1 lead. I took uh, four L's. Um, I went one and four. And then Drew, yeah, just horrible picks. And to be quite honest with you, I was just sitting here picking games. I don't even know why I picked half of them that way. 
Um, but Cal and Tom also ended up at three and two. We all picked Nebraska, so that was where we went wrong. Um, but how does it feel to be on top, Drew? Be honest with you, I was just guessing. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I, I don't know anything about Vanderbilt or Hawaii. I just thought SEC was better than a group of five, so I, I picked Vanderbilt. There you go. And the rest of the games were just kind of luck, <laughs> to be honest. But I was How thinking about picking North Carolina. Uh, three for four. So we went three for four in the parlay. The Wyoming That's Cowboys. That's the most classic thing I've ever heard. Yeah, no. It, and the thing is, is the Wyoming Cowboys, yeah. the, the whole time, I, I turned the game on the first drive. I knew I knew, I knew, it was fucked. I watched the first drive. I said, this is not going to happen. Wyoming, they're, not, so they're just not good enough. The quarterback, <laughs> quarterback had 30 yards for an entire game. Oh, dude, there was a hey, Here's point. my question, though. Yeah. He's bad. Well, do you think if you think Wyoming would be a top twenty-five team right now if they had the Josh Allen on the Bills right now? Like today's Josh Allen. They'd be receiving votes. They would not be top twenty-five. They're that bad. <laughs> they got a Heisman finalist though. I mean, Drew, let me just was tell Josh you Allen thing. a Heisman finalist? Is it Wyoming? Oh God, no, no. He was a famous Idaho potato bowler, though. He just, likes, he just likes to throw the ball 80 yards in the air and run over people. Uh, all I'll say is this. Uh, the fact that Josh Allen went to Wyoming is just always going to be shocking. Like, what the hell were the people that were scouting doing back then? Obviously not looking at good players. Probably not talking to Tommy Lude. That's, that's a fact. That's a fact. And that's a perfect, <laughs> perfect intro for our interview with Tommy Luganbill. Tom Luganbill. Um, who is apparently uh, referred to as Lugs now by his uh, uh, colleagues. He gave us that uh, little bit of information. Um, but here's that interview right now. Well, we want to welcome a special guest today. It's Tom Luganbill. He's a part of the uh, recruiting in the scout with college football at ESPN as long as a sideline reporter. I also heard, uh, to break the ice real quick with you, Tom, that you were once a quarterback at Georgia Tech. So we're going to have to ask you a few questions about that, but very thankful to have you. Uh, just wanted to start off with a quick question about Georgia Tech. Tell us about your time playing college football and if you got to play any professionally, where, where that was and what that looked like for you. Yeah, you know, I was a little bit of an enigma. I was a late bloomer coming out of high school. I played in a wing T offense in San Diego at Torrey Pines High School. Really wasn't recruited at all. Um, I was on the shorter side. I was lean. I played receiver, running back, and quarterback. Hadn't really settled in as a quarterback yet, so I decided to transfer or to attend junior college my first two years. And that was where I really grew and, and blossomed. Ended up going 22-1 and one in two years, won the junior college national championship. Uh, broke dozens of records and ended up being recruited two years later, you know, fairly heavily. Ended up at Georgia Tech, um, transferred there, uh, was the starter my junior year, had a terrible year um, as, as a program. Coach gets fired, new coach comes in, they start to run the option. I'm not an option guy, I'm a, I'm a thrower. I ended up uh, transferring and finishing up at uh, – Eastern Kentucky under the legendary uh, Roy Kidd. So uh, I had a great college experience. I mean, I, I got to, I was a four-year starter. I never redshirted, got to play at three different levels of college football, um, was involved in, in, in two quarterback competitions. Actually, when I arrived at Georgia Tech, they had a returning starter 
Um, and I had to beat him out. And then when I arrived at Eastern Kentucky, I had to battle uh, in training camp for the starting job. And so I, you know, I'd like to say that I, I've earned a lot of, of, of my playing time over the course of four years. And then I had the opportunity to play in the Arena Football League for a couple of years. And, and really, I just I used the money I made in the Arena Football League to pay for grad school, um, earned my master's degree. And at the time, I was working in NFL Europe and, uh, you know, getting into scouting, getting into coaching. And then, you know, after that, spent really the, last, the next 10 to 11 years as either a position coach, coordinator, uh, player personnel director, scout um, at a variety of spots in professional football before joining ESPN in uh, the, uh, let's see, it would have been January of 2005. So going on 18 years here now at ESPN. That is yeah. incredible, man. I can't even imagine. Yeah, so uh, I guess my my first question when you when you go through that timeline would be, so, so what convinced you from taking it from uh, basically a coaching role um, into getting into recruiting and, and kind of starting with ESPN. What what was that uh, transition like? Well, part of it was the team I was coaching folded. I wasn't left with many choices. <laughs> so, um, you know, I had I had been um, I've been in NFL Europe. I've been in the first iteration of the XFL as a coach. I worked for the Dallas Cowboys. I've worked in the Arena Football League. Um, kind of bounced around to a lot of different spots. Uh, Wore a lot of different hats. I, I was a head coach. I was a director of player personnel. I was a director of football operations. So I kind of had my hands in a lot of different areas. And I had started going to work for a, a scouting company, an independent scouting company called Scouts Inc. back in 2003, 2004. And I was just doing some side work for them, uh, doing player evaluation at the NFL level for, for free agent market analysis in the sense that when a guy became a free agent, we would do a deep dive. We would evaluate and scrutinize and try to come up with what we think his market value actually is based off of what his production level was. And then started morph into more player evaluation of, free, of, of, of training camp cuts, guys on the street, who's available for teams to sign throughout the fall. And as I was doing that, I started to realize um, that, you know, maybe I don't have to be in coaching to be happy. I loved coaching. But I was uh, newly married, was wanting to start a family. And it's a lot easier to be in that profession when you don't have any other responsibilities. When you have other responsibilities, the time that it takes and being away from home or being on the road or being in the office at 5 a.m. or 11 or 30 at night, it's just it can take a toll. And what I found was the happy medium for me was I love the player evaluation side. I love the scouting side. There was a lot more stability in it. So. I'm the head coach at Detroit in the Arena Football League, and I'm kind of weaning myself out anyway and, and, and doing more and more, uh, I guess you could say, hide side hustles, as they'd call them these days. But I was working as a contract right, right. worker in player evaluation and not knowing it at the time, but our group, Scouts Inc., had uh, media contracts. with we, we, we had contracts with NFL franchises, but then we had a multimedia side where we served at the time like CNN, SI, uh, we had uh, we we uh, serviced magazines, but we also did a lot of behind the scenes work for ESPN. Nobody would have ever known it. We would provide content behind the scenes, and they'd use that to help uh, you know educate their broadcasters, get them information, do film breakdowns, do game studies, all of that stuff. We were just a behind the scenes unit. Well, um, all of a sudden, our contracts up with them at the time, who I was working for at Scouts Inc. and 
in ESPN uh, had come to our company and said, hey, listen, you know, instead of just doing some contract work, how about we, we purchase you? How about we bring you under the Disney umbrella? And at that time, um, the franchise I was working for had already folded. And just as anything in life, guys, it's all about timing, being in the right place at the right time. And I happened to be in that right place at right time. And the individual I was working for at the time said, hey, listen, we, we may have an opportunity to branch off into some different areas. And if you're interested, I may have a full-time gig for you, but I can't have you going back into coaching. If we're going to embark on this thing, I need to know that you're committed and that you're going to stay in and sat down and talked about it with my wife and really had to make sure I had the coaching part out of my blood and, and could be happy doing what I was doing. Well, long story short, I decided to say yes. I take on the job. and ESPN launches ESPNU, the all-college network, in the spring of 2005. At the same time, they launched their at the when I say at the time, ESPN was not covering recruiting. They certainly weren't covering it from a player evaluation perspective, and they weren't covering it from a, a film study, grade, rank, apply stars. That's just that's not what they were doing, but they wanted to. And so we put together a proposal for how we would like to do it. Um, we wanted to be different than the internet websites out there. You know, the rivals.com 247 wasn't around yet on three wasn't around yet, but at that time it was basically scout.com and rivals. And we were kind of the newcomer and they were more of a sub based model team oriented websites, rumor mill stuff, you know, where's so-and-so going is so-and-so narrowed his choices down to five. When is so-and-so going to make their announcement? We went actually the opposite direction. We didn't really care about that stuff. We kind of felt like that was going to take care of itself. We wanted to be on the what makes this guy special, what makes him unique, what are his strengths, what are his weaknesses, and where would we project him at the next level? And that was a proposal that we put forward. And so, again, right place, right time. I ended up heading that up, and we started it from the ground up in the spring of 05. Well, naturally, those at the time that were heading up ESPNU, they felt like, wow, there's a natural marriage between an all-college-based network and recruiting and recruiting was starting to, to blow up and that's actually how i fell totally backwards into television when i signed on at espn i was supposed to be completely a behind the scenes digital contributor watching film applying grades giving guys star rankings and i was fine with that and to this day i would have been fine with that got asked to do a couple of television shows here and there Next thing you know, I get asked to do more, get asked to do another one, and then two or three shows a week. And it turned into a, a full-time television gig that is now morphed from just doing recruiting to hosting studio shows to either being a sideline analyst or a sideline reporter or both, uh, serving as a host or an analyst for a TV show or both at the same time. And I've always just kind of felt like the more you can do, the more versatile you are and the harder it is for them to get rid of you. And so every time I was asked to do something, I never said no. I always said, yeah, right. okay, yeah. Even if I didn't know how to do it, I would figure it out. But I wanted to make sure that I, I, I kind of became a bit of a Swiss Army knife, if you will. And 18 years later, uh, here we are. I uh, had a game on Thursday night to kick off our high school weekend. Got another one on Saturday night. And uh, next Monday night, Labor Day, uh, me and my, my broadcast partner, of nine years, Dave Pash, and going on my second year with Dusty Dvorak, we'll be broadcasting uh, ESPN Primetime, Clemson, and Georgia Tech. 
So I wanted to ask you, I think uh, it's pretty interesting. So you played at Georgia Tech. Is it, uh, is it odd now to go back and do games there, or does it feel the same as any other game when you go back there? Well, it feels the same as, as any other game, particularly now because so many years have passed. You know, I was the starting quarterback mm-hmm. there in the fall of 94. Um, you know, there are very few people still actually within the program that I would have been known or been affiliated with. And I say that, but at the time, our academic advisors, now their athletic director, Todd Stansberry. So, that's you know, crazy. that's a connection that's that, that I that I still have there. Um, to be quite honest with you, one of the things, you know, I grew up the son of a coach. And and when you know you in our in our career in our line of work you're constantly being accused of being biased. Oh, you hate my team. <laughs> you hate my team. You know what my answer is? No, I hate all the teams. Trust me. Ask, <laughs> ask every fan base. Ask every fan base in America. They'll tell you I hate them. Right? Because if you're not saying sure. anything good about that fan base, you obviously are biased against them. And I've always found that growing this growing up the son of a coach. You know who you're a fan of? You're a fan of whatever team is putting food on the table. And so you don't necessarily have this, this unified allegiance to one program. So let's just say you guys may have grown up in the state of Alabama. You come out of the womb, and you're either Auburn or Alabama, right? Or, you know, you, you come up in, in, in Louisiana, and, and you're a diehard LSU fan. Well, I, didn't, I, I wasn't in that type of environment, and it's actually made it a lot easier for me as a broadcaster because I don't have a horse in the race. And I love Eastern Kentucky. I love Palomar College. I love Georgia Tech. Uh, all equally, uh, good times, bad times, anything in between. But when it comes down to it, it's about telling the story. It's about following the bouncing ball. And when we have a matchup, we're going to prepare the matchup to the best of our ability and call it like we see it. It's the only way you can do it. That's very interesting. I, uh, I work at a radio station for the University of Oklahoma and their sports stuff. But I grew up a huge Oklahoma State fan, and people can hear it in my biases. So when they hear me on the radio, they, I can I'll get tweets here and there where people are like, "Hey, man, like you're, you you don't like OU, you hate OU." I, so I understand that completely. That's very interesting. That you said. Oh yeah. Uh, we wanted to ask you. We wanted to ask you how has the recruiting changed in your time from starting off and then end of 2005 when it started to get more, I guess, national coverage, and how has it looked since NIL? Like, what's been the biggest change you've seen over your time? Uh, covering recruiting. So the the most significant initial change was obviously the growth of the internet. There's no question about that. And at the time of the growth of the internet, which from a from a an internet exposure perspective, that was probably between 2002 and 2005, where it really started booming, and you have internet websites covering it. And right around that same time was when we started to see all of these teams just throwing out offers. And really it started with Nebraska. It started with Nebraska just going out and offering 250 guys. They didn't know if they would take 20 of them, but they just offered them. Well, then what does everybody else feel like they've got to do if they want to be in the race with the kid? Now they feel like they've got to offer early. And that's what kind of created this huge rat race of early identification and early offers, which has led to an awful lot of poor communication, an awful lot of decisions that coaches have had to make that they probably wish that they hadn't because they got to back out of something that they committed to. And the problem is, is once you let that, that, that paste out of the tube, you can't put it back in. So now we've created this huge rat race of all of these kids um, and all of these offers being thrown out there. And by and large, many of them aren't committable at the time. You know, I've also often said to a kid, will say, oh, I got this offer and this offer and this offer. I say, call each and every one of those coaches right now and say you want to commit today and see what they tell you. 
honestly. I mean, yeah. that's that's really what it comes down to. I think the biggest shift initially was was the coverage on behalf of the internet because you couldn't hide things anymore. Coaches and teams couldn't hide guys that they'd found. They couldn't hide hidden gems. They It wasn't like the old days. Now all these kids can talk to each other on the internet. They're at camps and combines. They know what they're being told by the same school and what that what's that kid now being told. In the old days, that none of that stuff existed. All right, so that was a huge, huge shift. But now we're in an entirely different world. Quite frankly, I think a very, very dangerous world. And I, and I, and I love it for the player. But between the transfer portal and between the extra year of eligibility that was afforded to everybody during COVID, and then obviously, as you mentioned, name, image, and likeness, we are in a world unlike anything we've ever been in before. And unfortunately, we've now taken the most transformative legislation that you can make an argument in the last 40 years, maybe since the late 80s, that we have seen in college athletics, and we dumped it on the laps of everybody with no <laughs> rules, no guidelines, no blueprint on how to execute it. It's an absolute free-for-all. And, you know, it's it's making the job of everybody, not just the coaches, but the players, the parents, the third-party handlers, the runners, everybody's job has gotten a, has gotten a lot more difficult. And the one thing, too, that I would say, and, and I say this to prospects all the time, is there's always going to be a trickle-down effect. If we're going to have the transfer portal be an open window to go whenever you want to, one time for free without having to transfer down, and we also gave everybody an extra year of eligibility, because let's not forget – when the when the pandemic occurred and they and they afforded an extra year of eligibility, they didn't just give it to everybody in the last year of their eligibility. They gave it to everybody on the roster. So some of this is still two years away from being resolved. Well, if you have the transfer portal and you've got the extra year of eligibility, do the math. There's not enough scholarships for everybody. So if a program is going to withhold, let's just say, seven scholarships or ten scholarships for the transfer portal, okay, or for keeping an extra player on their roster for an extra year with his extra year of eligibility, guess who doesn't have access to that scholarship now? The high school player. The high school player is the player that suffers in all of this. And that's one of the reasons why I tell kids all the time, listen, a a scholarship now is, um, is far more of a hot commodity than it ever was before. It was a privilege before, and now, um, if you have a scholarship offer and it's committable, don't play games because eventually for everybody, the music's going to stop and there are going to be a lot of people left without a chair. And that is changing college athletics. Now we could, the, the four of us could sit on this, on this podcast right now and we could do five hours on name, image, and likeness. I mean, there's right. the positives, the negatives, um, the unintended consequences, the fact that, we're dealing with younger and younger people, and because they're not employees, you can't put performance clauses in their contracts. So, for example, the case of Miles Brennan, there's yeah. nothing anybody can do about the NIL deals that he signed. He gets that money no matter what. Well, that's not the real world. That's not how the real world yeah. works. Do you go out and have a job and get paid a bunch of money or get a bunch of endorsements and then not have to do anything to earn it? No. I wish. I wish. See, I, we, I wish. All, we all wish, right? And so – yeah. I think that's a little bit dangerous. I'm mean, again, and we could go down so many paths with that, but it's a whole new world out there, guys. No doubt, no doubt. 
All right, so uh, our next question is, uh, what do you look for when you go and, like, watch a recruit and analyze them? Like, other aside from, like, their uh, ability and everything, do you, like, look out for anything else they do while they're well, out there? you know, the, the one thing that I think in player evaluation and scouting, and it's very subjective, okay, and that's why everybody has different opinions on it. Yeah. The easy part nowadays with technology, quality of film, film angles, camps and combines, all the ability to gather verifiable, measurable data. Evaluating the athletic part of it has become the easy part. Okay, we okay. you can turn on the tape and, all right, this guy can play. All right, now what level can he play at, right? Because there's a reason there's different levels of college football because there's different levels of talent. Not everybody can play at Alabama, but a lot of people can be scholarship players and play at Miami of Ohio or play at East Carolina or what have you. And so you got to project at what level do you think they're going to be. But the height, weight, speed, hand size, arm length, 40-yard um, uh, split, 10-yard split, three-cone L drill, 20, 5-10-5-20-yard uh, uh, short shuttle. Uh, we, we can gather all of that stuff, and, it, and it's great to build a library on the prospect. But I think there's one very important question, regardless of it, whether it's high school to college or college to the NFL, that you have to, to the best of your ability – get the answer to and that is does this person love football does he like football does he like what football gives him does he like getting recruited or does he love football does he love the grind does he love the 5 a.m workout does he love the sacrifice that has to be made if you can find that out you have yourself a pot of gold that's first and foremost. And then I think ultimately, and I share this with so many kids and parents and, and those in this and, and, and that are coming up in the ranks of, of, of getting recruited and they're embarking on this whole new deal. I can't tell you over the course of the last 18 years, and when I say 18 years, that's just dealing with the high school athlete, but prior to that, previous 10 or 11 years in, in pro football, how many prospects I've seen, whether they're 15 years old, 18 years old, 27 years old, that have all the physical attributes, they have the height, the weight, the speed, they're explosive, they're flexible, they can bend, they can do all of the things that you check the boxes on, and they don't pan out. And you have to ask yourself, why? Why didn't this guy pan out? 99.9% .9 of the time, it has nothing to do with a physical attribute. So what we're trying to identify is, does he have a character flaw? Right. Is there a substance abuse problem? Is there an at-home problem all right, that he's dealing with that maybe nobody knows that's having a, a dramatic effect on his emotional stability? Is he mature enough to be away from home for the first time, not having mommy and daddy tap him on the shoulder and say, hey, by the way, you got to get up and work out start at 530? Can he be responsible for his time? Who is he hanging out with? What type of crowd is he running with? Now, I'm using the term he because I'm referencing football here exclusively, but this could apply to a variety of sports, male or yeah. female. Those are the difficult things to try and identify because in order to gather that information, you're not going to get it on film, right? You're probably not going to get it from the kid. You may not get it from the kid's coach because the kid's coach is kind of caught in between, right? He wants to help that kid move on. Part of his job is to help that kid move on. So he doesn't want to hurt him. So he may not always be overly honest with you. So what do you then have to do? You you got to go to the athletic trainer, the equipment manager, the groundskeeper, the counselor, the eighth grade principal, the vice principal of the high school he's at when he's a junior, 
try and gather all this information because the ultimate goal is to avoid missing, right? You don't want to miss yeah. on a kid. And if you're going to miss, you're probably not going to miss on the athletic stuff. You're going to be able to get that stuff. You're going to be able to see that stuff. It's going to be some variable that either you didn't work hard enough to identify or you identified it, chose to ignore it, or thought you could fix it. And that happens all the time. And that happens at the NFL level, too, guys. Think about this. Oh, yeah. Put, put it in an NFL perspective. The National Football League has 32 teams. They all get one selection in the first round, right? Maybe more if you made a trade, all right? They're dealing with a 21, 22, 23-year-old. They have unlimited resources to uncover every red flag you could possibly uncover to hopefully avoid making a $50 million mistake, right? Yeah. The NFL misses on 50% of their first-round draft choices. That's one guy. Oh, so yeah. imagine being a college coach, and you're expected to bring in 25, 17-year-olds, and they think you're going to be right on all of them. It's impossible. It's absolutely impossible. You are going to miss, but you can make some preventative measures and create some preventative measures to minimize that if you're willing to put in the work. That's wild. Uh, So kind of going into more of like stuff with that thing and evaluating players, the the star system and then kind of the crystal ball system as well, is is that like the best way you could think of of how to – rank players or have you ever thought has there ever been talks about ranking in different ways so just like oh this guy's a five star this guy's a four star right and that's a really really good question we actually and again this came from a, a scouting perspective when we very very first started this is is we grade on a numerical tier all right each one of those numerical tiers also have a star level equated so let's just say a grade 90 right. to 100 is what we would call an elite rare prospect so he's going to be in the five-star category. An 80 to 89 would be a four-star guy, all right? Uh, 70 to 79, a three-star guy. You, you, you see where I'm going here. But one of the reasons why we do that is there is a difference between a grade 88 four-star and a grade 81 four-star. They're both four-stars, but they're on opposite ends of the spectrum. This guy has a little bit more to him than maybe this guy. Doesn't mean this guy's not a four-star. It just means he's not as far up to where this guy is. So instead of just lumping a bunch of stars together, we wanted to create tiers because that's what you would do if you were in a pro personnel system or a college scouting model at the NFL level. You're going to assign – everybody has their own grading system. They don't even use stars. Stars are only applied right now because it's the one thing fans gravitate towards, right? Fans identify – with a star ranking, all right? They may not have a football background, so when you tell them that guy's a grade 75, what does that mean to them? But if I tell them it's a three-star, oh, okay, he's a three-star. But what I'm trying to say to you is if I graded a guy as a grade 78 three-star, he goes to Kansas State. He's a power five guy. We think he's got upside to redshirt, develop, and maybe one day at the collegiate level be a four-star guy. But the grade 73 player – he is a three-star player as well, but he goes to Central Michigan. All right? He's not at the same skill level, and that's why we assign the number to differentiate the different players in each one of, of those tiers. And to be honest with you, our first, oh, boy, I think five, six years, we didn't even have a star rank. ESPN.com came to us and said, hey, I think from a fan perspective, it would be good to apply this. Can we add a star ranking to the numerical profile? Absolutely, no problem. It was easy to do, and that's how we decided to break it up. 
That's interesting that you said that. Uh, I guess, yeah, it makes more sense just because the amount of fans that gravitate towards the SARS system, that it ends up kind of being the end-all, be-all, right. because that's that's what fans it's see. all they know. Um, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I have a question here kind of more based on, on actual football and the guys that, that are playing nowadays. Um, so, you know, you hear everybody kind of talk about how the SEC is just – it's different. Like, they recruit different. They have, uh, you know – better recruits up front, especially. Sure. Um, what, what have you seen during your time and kind of analyzing these recruits? A, is that true? And B, is that how, how accentuated is that difference between the SEC and the other conferences now? It's not the SEC. It's the footprint by which the SEC has access to that's right in their backyard. That's the thing. So okay. Okay. we've often gone back and we, we've studied the U.S. national consensus. It comes out every four years. And in the U.S. national consensus, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but you can get everything from percentage of the population that's Asian versus a percentage of the population that is white or Latino versus. A, and it will tell you per state, per region, per capita, where everything lines up. OK, so I've often said it, particularly over the last 10 years. All right. That the state of Georgia is a better state of high school football participation per capita than the state of California. Now, a lot of people will say, well, how can you say that? The state of California has 38 million people. Yes, it does. It has 38 million people. But what percentage of that 38 million people is a football playing percentage? And I can Lower assure you it's not yeah. even close. Roughly yeah. right. close to 60% of that population is not a football playing percentage of their population. I grew up in Southern California, right? And so everybody, oh, well, you're biased towards the West Coast. No, I'm not. I'm looking at the numbers. This is what the numbers tell us statistically. (laughs) Well, when you take a look at the state of Florida and the five states that border, all right, let's just go South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, right? You just take those states alone. If I'm the University of Florida, or I'm Miami, or I'm Florida State, and there is a great player in the state of Florida, and for whatever reason, we don't think we're going to get them. Those three schools, the big three in Florida, could probably go on any given year, go into the state of Georgia, the state of Alabama, the state of Mississippi, or the state of Louisiana, Louisiana, and get the same caliber player out of those states that border on them that they could get in their own state. Yeah. The difference between that and the West Coast from a footprint footprint standpoint is look at the states that border California, Arizona, Nevada, Oregon. Look at the states that border those states, Washington, Idaho, right? Utah, New Mexico. So if SC or UCLA is in Southern California and they lose a DJ to Clemson, they lose a Tua to Alabama, they lose a Bryce Young to Alabama, they can't just yeah. go into New Mexico and replace that guy. Okay, New Mexico right. doesn't have enough players. All right, they can't go into yeah. Utah and replace that guy. Not enough players. So really it's about populace. It's about a football yeah. playing populace. And when you look and you go back to the 70s and 80s and early 90s, and if you recall, and you guys probably aren't old enough, but all the talk was about Midwest football, right? The state of Pennsylvania, state of Ohio, state of Michigan, you know, some parts Nebraska. of southern yeah, some parts of southern New York. Well, guess what <laughs> happened? You got a huge population shift. Because plants, fabrication, factories, a lot of those jobs closed. So the population decreased because those families moved out of those areas and moved south. 
into what we have now. So you had what was a very high population of a football playing uh, populace in those areas that no longer exists. All right. So now the southeast footprint is where you have your highest level of football playing population, at least in the high school ranks. And it's it's why Clemson is what they are. Um, it, it's, it's why the SEC has such a, a stranglehold on top-level prospects because, I mean, quite honestly, think about this, guys. If Nick Saban at Alabama or Kirby Smart at Georgia, if they wanted to, they could likely recruit their entire roster and not have to get on an airplane. Oh, yeah. Well, Georgia especially. Yeah. I mean, Kirby right. Smart could, if he really wanted to, he could probably recruit his everybody from the entire, from only Georgia. Josh Heupel but, I mean, at Tennessee yeah. could get on I-75, all right, drive right down into Atlanta, get on I-85, drive right back up, get to I-40 in North Carolina, turn left and go right back to Knoxville, and probably be able to find 20 players that could compete for an SEC East title. Right, yeah. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. I think it's very interesting because you, the way you, you said it, that, you know, we used to have more of a populace up north or in the Midwest. and. Mm-hmm. Midwestern football is a bigger deal. And now you're kind of seeing that come like it, that is true because the, the Midwest used to have a big conference and that was kind of more the big 12. And now that's not a, it, they can't compete with the sec right now. Well, let, um, me, let me give you a prime example on that. Um, Nebraska is the single greatest example of that, that we have in college football yeah. right now. I've they always are, said yeah. the, the worst thing to happen to Nebraska football was the advent of cable television. Because if you remember Nebraska in their heyday, you didn't have 85 scholarships. You had 105 scholarships. You didn't have a limited walk-on restriction. You had unlimited walk-ons. And in those days, you basically had three networks broadcasting college football. You had Notre Dame playing every week, Alabama playing every week, USC playing every week, right? You had Nebraska. They were, there were these iconic brands and they were the only brands that you saw, right? Because they played on network television. No internet, no exposure. The only type of media exposure you got was from your local media, all right, whether it be through television, radio, or print. So all of a sudden, the arms race begins. And the late 80s and early, late 80s, and early 90s occurs. And now you have scholarship reductions. You have walk-on restrictions. You have Prop 48. And cable television comes yeah, into yeah. play. All of this money floods into all of these other programs that now allow teams to compete on a national level that never had a chance before. So guess what happens? Everybody's facilities become like Nebraska's. Everybody's stadium enhancement becomes like Nebraska's, all right? Everybody's playing on television. Now, all of a sudden, we have 40 bowls, so everybody's going to a bowl game. The the playing field was absolutely leveled when it came to Nebraska, and this is why this job's so hard. So I'm gonna give you a prime example. Because we did the study one year. I want to say it was the 2014 class. I could be off. Uh, don't quote me on that. We did a study of the average miles away from Lincoln, Nebraska, of every player that Nebraska signed in that class. It was over 900 miles. Yeah, no, I, I don't doubt that. That's, now, that's think about this. That's before we got into all of this freshmen and sophomores taking unofficial visits and coming to campus five times a year. That's before we got into the official visits being allowed in the spring, all right? So now, if you're Scott Frost, if you're a Nebraska coaching staff member, how are you supposed to get elite-level players 
on your campus when they got to do it on their own dime and they're 700 miles away, whereas Dabo Sweeney, Nick Saban, Kirby Smart, Brian Kelly, uh, Mario Cristobal could throw a rock outside of their office. And within 200 miles in any direction, an elite player, probably 50 of them, could drive to their campus. Yeah, the it's, transfer rules their answer. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well that's that's yeah. in, incredibly interesting. I, I we could talk about recruiting all day, but I do want I do want to get into what you do on the sidelines a little bit. Okay. Um so my my I love I love the sideline reporter. I think it's a, just an awesome aspect of your Saturdays. Um but you know, we don't get to watch you but maybe four or five times a game. So what do you do when you're not being filmed? And do you do you bring snacks down there? Like, what does that look like? So I got to correct you a little bit. When I correct you, you'll understand what I'm getting at here. Okay. So I'm technically not a reporter. I have to I have to do reporting Sorry, yeah. duties. So uh, I, I I'm very proud of this because our company came to me about, about ten years ago and said, Hey, we're thinking about creating a role that we want to call the field analyst, where we want to use what would normally be a booth broadcaster or a studio analyst, which I was at the time, and put them on the field and give a different perspective. And I had had a coaching background and a scouting background. So um, our company came to me and just provided me a wonderful opportunity to see how this could work because broadcast television on a live event so much of what you're doing with your broadcast partner, number one, you're standing right next to them if you're in the booth. Number two, you have monitors and all of these different things that can help you up there see replays and be able to, to um, kind of get a head start on what's coming. You have a spotter. You have a stack guy. They're all up there, right? But to do what we're doing is you have that element. But if you put me on the field and you open up my mic and I'm conversing with the two guys up in the booth, if you can imagine the difficulty in that, we're doing it blindly. I can't see them. I don't have monitors. I don't have a stack guy. I don't, I, I don't have that type of help. I can't nudge them and say, hey, I'm going to jump in here. None of those sorts of things. So it kind of becomes this dance of right. learning each other's inflections and pauses and nuances and how to get in here and get in there. So that was a long-winded way of getting around to your answer. Generally, in a normal field reporter role, the field reporter, their mic is closed at all times until they come on air to either give a report of an injury or tell a story or to do the halftime interview going into the locker room or the, the post-game interview. The only real aspect of the sideline reporter role that I have to combine with my field analyst role is the halftime interview and the post-game interview. Aside from that, I'm I'm down there strictly as an analyst. And my mic is open at all times. So I can chime into the broadcast. I give analysis from a different perspective. And what makes what we do kind of unique is because I'm down there with access, sometimes 10 yards from me, five yards from me, 20 yards from me, hearing all the sights and sounds, seeing it from this level, as opposed to this level, I can give a perspective that they can't give up there and they can give a perspective right. up there that I can't yeah. give on the field. And what the goal is, is to mess those three together or those two things right. together. So I'll, I'll give you a prime example of kind of something that was kind of cool and how this works. Several years ago, I was working with Dave Pash. As I mentioned, Dave's been my play-by-play -play guy for nine years and, and yeah. Brian Greasy 
was my original uh, analyst in the booth. We had Minnesota at Nebraska. And Minnesota throws a deep ball down the sideline, down Nebraska's sideline, and completes it. And completes it. The guy catches it, falls down, goes out of bounds. And I happen to be standing two feet from it. All right? So I'm watching the whole entire thing unfold. Lands right at my feet. And Bo Pelini is running down the sideline, losing his mind. Now, if you're looking at this on your television set and you're listening to Dave and Brian give their analysis of it, you think that Bo Pelini is screaming his head off at the corner for getting beat on the deep route, right? I'm standing there and I'm literally watching Bo Pelini come down and he is ripping the safety. Because the reason why the ball was caught is they're in cover two. The corner played it right. The safety didn't get off the hash. So I was able to immediately chime in and say, hey, guys, this was a cover two bus. Bo Pelini's standing right next to me. And he is laying into their safety that was late to get off the hash. Had he gotten off the hash, he makes that play and he maybe intercepts the ball. Instead, it makes it look like the corner's at fault and the corner wasn't at fault. So it's those types of, of moments. I've had a, I had a, a situation one time with Jimbo Fisher asking me about, he goes, hey, Tommy, Tommy, are, are we on the three or are we on the one and a half? What are we on? He's like yelling down at me from, from the, <laughs> the box. And so, you know, just those types of things, I think, and we're very proud of, of the dynamic we've created. You know, like I said, Dave and I have been doing it for nine years. We kind of have this, this, this back and forth. And I did uh, three years with uh, – with, uh, uh, Brian Greasy, I did another four years with Greg McElroy, and then this will be my second year with Dusty Dvorak being up in the booth. Calvin, I know you know Dusty if you're an Oklahoma guy. Um, and <laughs> yep. so uh, it's it's a lot of fun, and I think that we're able to give a unique perspective and maybe reveal some sights and sounds and some things that happen during a game that you wouldn't otherwise get, you know. And um, and so it's a lot of fun, man. It's It's different, and it's a lot of work because you're hustling, you're running around. Trust me, there's no time for snacks and drinks. I can tell you that. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, so, go ahead, Cal. Go ahead. Good. Uh, I was going to say, basically, my question was, is, is with this and you being at ESPN for as long as you have, who's been the coolest or your favorite ESPN personality to, to do things with throughout your time? Oh, man, that's a tough question to answer. You put me on the spot. I think the one person that, if you ask that question, the one person that would stand out to everybody because he is genuinely such a good guy would be Reese Davis. You know, what you see on TV okay. is what he is in person. See that? And, and, that, uh, I, and, I, and again, I think a lot of people would give you that answer. I mean, we have fun in a variety of, of, of different ways doing different things. But it, it's weird because unless you're on a specific event, we're all in different locations all the time. We rarely see each other. Right. We may see each other yeah. for, for two days at a time. Um, and, you know, it's it's not as if we're all in the same location a lot, you know. And, you know, back in the days of ESPNU when we were doing a bunch of studio television, you know, on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then you'd travel on Thursday to go do your game, those studio shows, you'd come in contact with a lot of people that you'd develop relationships with because you're working with them all the time, particularly people that are behind the scenes, producers, directors, PAs. Um, all of those types of people. But I, I've always found there to be an appreciation for people that you've admired in the profession. And then when you meet them or work with them, they're as advertised. And I would, that's probably why I would say Reese. Cool. That's really cool. 
Yeah, we, we've just got a couple more questions, we're get, or maybe just one or two questions. We'll get okay. you out of here. I don't want to keep you too long, but um, I guess this is a pretty easy question to answer. So you're obviously on the sideline. Um, what is the loudest stadium that you've been uh, covering a game at so far? So a lot of people are going to say, no way, that's impossible. And trust me, it's not impossible because I've done it two or three times. But when Mississippi State is good and they're playing a ranked team at home at night, <laughs> sure. cowbells change everything. Yeah, uh, to that's the, probably to the true. Point, to the point where you'll that ringing will last in your ears till about a Tuesday morning. And if you're on <laughs> offense and you're caught backed up in the closed end of their end zone, yeah, it is it is deafening. Um, I here's what I would probably say. I think LSU at night, Auburn at yeah. night, Clemson's awfully difficult. I think some underrated loud places that people would say, "Oh, really?" Husky Stadium at Washington. Yeah, that's uh, a good one. Kinnick Stadium at Iowa. Um, Camp Randall, Madison, Wisconsin. All really, really tough places. Uh, it, it's interesting because I have found in, in my experience that while the fans are devoted and passionate, Michigan is not that loud of a place to play. Um, I've really? always yeah. been surprised um, at – and I mean, it's it's a hundred and what eight thousand, hundred and ten thousand fans. Yeah, um, Knoxville can really get rocking. You know, I think a lot of it too. It depends on the kick time, right? If it's noon, yeah, yeah. three thirty, or prime time, because you got you got to take into account how how long the fans have had a chance to get lubed up before they got to jump into the <laughs> jump into the stadium and get rowdy, you know. And uh, and so, uh, but no, I, I I've been very fortunate. Um, I'm generally on the noon or 3.30 uh, ABC crew, which means when you're in that window, you're rarely going to go past the central time zone. So I'm going to be calling games every week, either in the Big Ten, Big 12, SEC or ACC. And then sometimes we'll get like one of those Pac-12 after dark games where, you know, SC's playing Utah or, you know, Arizona State's playing Oregon. But um, I think that for the most part, trying to think i've been i don't know if there's a stadium in the big yeah i have not been to oklahoma state that's one of the few in in nine years i've never gotten no i've had an oklahoma state game i just never had (laughs) i remember yeah i remember Um, you doing the pit game the osu yeah yeah and uh and then and i'm trying but in the in the big 12 that's the only one big 10 i've been i've been everywhere in the big 10 and uh, I'm trying to think, SEC, ACC, I've been. I live in Charlotte, North Carolina. I've driven to half of those stadiums. So, yeah, not many I've right, missed there. Right. You'll have to, well, you have to well, come out to Boone Pickens. I know. Yeah, it, and that's know why it. your answer wasn't Boone Pickens. Because if you come to Boone Pickens, that'll be your answer above and beyond. It's, it's no question at this point. I know one thing. Uh, fans are right on top of you. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. You're not going to have much room. That's, that's the problem. <laughs> But, uh, Tom, we want to thank you for your time, man. We really do appreciate this. It's been a good time. Uh, real quick, do you have any nicknames that you go by before we get you out of here? Uh, so when I was growing up, like I told you, I was the son of a coach, and my last name's Luganville, and my dad's nickname was Coach Lugie. So I became Little Lugie, which is kind of funny because my dad and Steve Spurrier go back a long ways, and Spurrier calls me Lugie. But for whatever reason, everybody in this profession, and I do not know why, I somehow got nicknamed Lugs. All right, I don't know how you spell it. You either spell it L-O-O-G-S. Or L O O G Z, and I would say, well, shouldn't it be L U G S? But that's lugs. 
That doesn't make sense. Right. And I can tell you exactly who started it. It was a producer in Charlotte, North Carolina at ESPNU back in 05 named Pete Waters. He just randomly started calling me Luke. And then it started to become where that's all I literally answered to. And I swear to this day, I bet you if I walked into that building tomorrow, there would be people in that building after 18 years that probably don't know my first name. <laughs> That's how my nickname has followed me. Yeah, around. hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> that so is certainly hilarious. stuck. So we, we were just wondering because yesterday, jokingly, one of us said, call him Tommy Lou. So that's really funny that that's your nickname too. was that. Yeah, there you go. That's fine. <laughs> I go by anything. <laughs> but man, we do appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time, man. You bet, guys. Have a great weekend, okay? Yeah, you take it. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, see ya. See ya.